Hi, welcome to Sustainable Wellness's podcast. I am your host, Jesse Thomas. Many of you are probably familiar with Hippocrates, the father of medicine, and his quotes, all diseases begin in the gut and let thy food be thy medicine. Those quotes are thousands of years old and still to this day are some of the truest statements that have ever been spoken in healthcare. Last week, I sat down with medical doctor Terry Walls, creator of the Walls Protocol, helping people treat and reverse autoimmune conditions through the use of diet and lifestyle. I also sat down with Hilary Boynton, author of the Heal Your Gut Cookbook and founder of the company School of Lunch, whose sole mission is to interrupt the trend of chronic disease in children through preparing and serving locally sourced, nutrient-dense food. In this episode, we learn about their personal health journeys and how they found their way from diagnoses to empowerment. Later in this episode, Hillary and I talk about the power of food in establishing a life of health and vitality in the next generation. We talk about the role of mothers during the pandemic and how to step into what actually matters and let go of what doesn't. In this short section, I get her thoughts on what's been challenging the last two years and how we move forward. Both of these women are absolute game changers in the future of health and medicine and are such inspirations. I hope you enjoy this episode. Terry, uh, where are you, where are you coming? Where are you calling in from today? And then I just want to hear a little bit more about your story. So I, I'm located in Iowa City, Iowa, uh, which is uh, central United States. Uh, and to tell your audience, your tribe, my story, I'll take you back 20 years. You know, I'm out walking with my wife. My left leg uh, grows weak, dragging it to Ihopla home. Uh, I see the neurologist the next day who says, Terry, this could be bad, really, really bad. At night in bed next to Jack, I think about the 20 years I've had of relentlessly worsening electrical face pain due to trigeminal neuralgia. And I pray secretly for a fatal diagnosis. Three weeks later, I hear multiple sclerosis. I take the newest drugs, see the best people. Three years later, I hear tilt, recline, wheelchair. My electrical pains have been getting relentlessly worse. My face pains turn on, tears stream down my face as my 10-year-old daughter, uh, Zeb, hugs me. Uh, but I'm a physician. I've been reading the basic science night after night. I am experimenting on myself, and the speed of my decline slows. Then I discover a study using electrical stimulation of muscles, and I ask my physical therapist, can I try that? He calls it E-STEM. My test session hurts like hell. But when it's over, I feel great. And I begin doing E-STEM to as much pain as I can tolerate. My physicians say, I have secondary progressive multiple sclerosis. That functions once lost will not come back. But am I doing all that I can? I've already done the paleo diet for five years, but now I redesign my paleo diet based on all the science I've been reading. I go back to meditating. I increase the e-stem. And three months later, my pain is gone. My brain fog is gone. My energy is steadily improving. Three months after that, I am walking without a cane. 
And two months later, after an emergency meeting with my family, we decide that yes, I can try for the first time in six years to get on my bike. My son jogs alongside on the left, my daughter on the right, and Jack follows on her bike. And I bike around the block. My son is crying, my daughter is crying, my wife is crying, and I am crying. It changes how I think about disease and health. It will change the way I focus my clinical practice, and it changes the focus of my clinical research. I now have conducted uh, five clinical trials testing the efficacy of diet and lifestyle to treat and stabilize patients with progressive multiple sclerosis, with relapsing and remitting multiple sclerosis. I can show that people, yes, they can implement the diet and the lifestyle interventions that I advocate. And that when they do, fatigue is reduced, energy is improved, mental clarity is improved, mood is improved, and that for many, motor function is significantly improved. Uh, and now I teach clinicians and I teach the public how to use these concepts in their practice and for the public in their lives. When you were you know, trying this stuff out when you were experimenting with yourself and when you were maybe, I would say the learning phase is what you could call it. When you were in the learning phase of how to treat this in an unconventional set, in an unconventional way, what were you looking at? What were you reading? So the first um, four years of my illness and the first 20 years of trigeminal neuralgia, I was seeing conventional docs, um, getting the best treatment uh, that was available, mm -hmm. uh, using drugs, injections, uh, infusions. Um, when I hit the wheelchair, um, we escalated. I took chemotherapy. Uh, that didn't work. Uh, then I was take, uh, started on Tizabri. That didn't work. Then I switched to Celsept. And that's, and I should also say, I had um, read about uh, the Swank diet, the very low fat diet. I tried that. And that had not helped me. Mm -hmm. um, my physicians had mentioned uh, in 2003, three years after diagnosis, while I was still walking around, uh, the paleo diet, I'd adapted that. Um, and the next year I needed the wheelchair. But I didn't know how long it would take for the paleo diet to begin to reverse things. When I hit the wheelchair, um, I realized that I needed to be doing everything that I could. And that's when I go back to reading the basic science night after night. Uh, and at first I'm looking for um, drug studies that are looking for off-label uses of drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, then I have an aha, like, you know, maybe I should be looking for supplement studies, things that I could actually access. And there weren't a lot of um, uh, studies for MS. Uh, there were more studies for Parkinson's, for Alzheimer's, for Huntington's disease. I developed the theory that mitochondria were the big drivers. And so I'd create a supplement cocktail for my mitochondria. And, and then I thought, oh, hell, I'm wasting my money. And I stopped all my supplements. Mm. And then I couldn't get out of bed at all. I was much worse. Mm. Yeah, and so three days later, I started my supplements and I could get up, go back to work. 
So like, wow, that's really interesting. So two weeks later, I did the same thing, stopped all my supplements, uh, I crashed, waited three days, stirred them again. <clears throat> and so then I thought, well, this is really interesting. Uh, and then I'm much more excited about reading the basic science. Mm-hmm. So how did it come to, how did you come to understand that so much of what you were, so much of the problem you were trying to solve was living in your gut? How did you know, that? It's, it's a long process. So in uh, 2004, nobody's talking about microbiome. There's very little research. Um, uh, I read the basic science. We're, we're focused on mitochondria, oxidative stress. Uh, I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine. It's still mostly about um, oxidative stress, uh, mitochondria, uh, toxins, hormonal balance. And I, when I redesigned my paleo diet in 2007, there still isn't a whole lot of conversation about the microbiome yet. Mm-hmm. So I've revised my diet, I've revised my meditative practice, my exercise program, and I recover remarkably. And then the revolution about the microbiome comes out and we realize that uh, probably the underlying mechanism as to why my diet and lifestyle was so effective was in part changing changes to the microbiome. Right. Yep. And Hillary, I want to, I want to get you in here too, because you are, you wrote the heal your gut cookbook Mm -hmm. and it also addresses the gut. And so take us back to where we can kind of understand how you got started on your journey and um, how it evolved. Yeah. Okay. Well, this all resonates with me so much. And, um, reaffirms, you know, my, the work that I do today, feeding children and just the, the passion that I have to prevent, to wake people up, to really understand diet and lifestyle are so huge and to set kids up as early as possible and kind of flip that switch and for parents to see and understand how important it is and to raise awareness about a healthy microbiome, what it is and how it works. If everybody could just understand a little bit of that, which I think once you do, it all kind of makes perfect Mm -hmm. sense. And then we can know how to tend to it and how to um, reverse things, I guess, or um, prevent things most importantly. So, I mean, I, my story goes back to high school when the fat-free era was hot and everybody was jumping on that bandwagon and my family did, and it was kind of out with the bacon and eggs and butter and in with the fat-free Weight Watchers, you know, whatever, and just processed things. And my mom was really health conscious and we all thought we were doing the right thing. Um, but I was, you know, one of those personalities that just sort of grabbed onto it and thought like kind of I'm like all in. And so it was like avoided fat, like the plague. I mean, it was just like no fat in my diet. I would just look at the ingredient list. If it said no fat, then I could eat it. I didn't look at any other ingredients. It was, it's really mind boggling to me today that I fell hook, line and sinker, but I know now I have five teenagers and I just know how impressionable kids are. And I was an athlete and I wanted to be thin and I was really muscular. So it's just like striving for that, you know, that image, the body image. And, um, and then it wasn't until, you know, I went through college where I was like 
playing soccer and really taxing my body and, um, and not eating well and not replenishing with proper nutrition. And then I got married at 25 and then at 26 got pregnant and shortly thereafter had a miscarriage. And I was blown away. I didn't even really understand what a miscarriage was and how it happened and why it happened. And I went on to have four miscarriages across the next three years, which is really like the most painful time of my life. I mean, I know us, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have uh, endured that and it, it really is, it's like no other, it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, it just really is so painful. And so um, I still didn't really wake up to changing my diet or life. I mean, there was all the mind body stuff was kind of just coming out and um, so of course it was like, but the more you thought about it, the, you know, the more it was like biting me in the butt, but you know, it was like, if one more person told me to like, just relax and you'll get pregnant. I'm like, I'm going to kill you. So, um, then I ended up having triplets through in vitro. And so was blessed with three kids all of a sudden. And then I thought, well, maybe we should try and have one more when they were three and boom, I got pregnant on my own. And then when he was six months old, I was pregnant with my fifth child. So all of a sudden I had five babies under four. So to, you know, be careful what you wish for, but it was just so incredibly blessed with all these babies. And, um, and that's when I did sort of wake up to, I wanted to do the best for them. And I was about all organic, but it was about organic cereal or organic pirate booty or what, you know, still processed foods. I hadn't really um, taken things to the real farm to, table level at all. Um, and then my, my fourth baby broke out in at like two months old, he broke out in eczema, like head to toe. And it was like, that's when I, I was probably after, you know, a few or, um, you know, months of that headed towards like looking back, headed towards an autoimmune disease. I like, he was scratching for two hours every night. So I'd have mm. to pin him to my chest and, you know, slather him with creams. And then I like, didn't, I tried everything and then finally put him on the Zyrtec twice a day and the steroid cream, which broke my heart because I knew um, it was my first choice, but I was desperate and had tried everything. And it, sure enough, it like took the scratch away and he would sleep through the night. I'm like, oh, hallelujah. But then if I forgot to put it on, then his eczema just flared again. So I was like, this is really just a bandaid. We're not getting to the root cause of what's causing this. And then I was like waking up in the middle of the night and it would take like 10 seconds for my right eye to open. And I thought I had shingles. Like I had all this like tingling Mm. on both sides of my body. So no doctor could really give me a diagnosis of anything. They were just like, I don't know. And I probably, you know, was drinking coffee in the morning and wine at night and sleep deprived and eat, you know, eating balance bars and just trying to survive basically. And so, um, ironically, I was like, (laughs) all of a sudden stumbled across the work of Jamie Oliver and Alice Waters. Uh-huh. So I didn't even have kids at school age yet, but I saw their work in the school food system. And I was just like, wow, this is incredible. And we need to change the school food here. And I was living in Massachusetts. So I sort of dove in to the town, you know, schools and tried to stir things up and, um, and get better school food. And somebody introduced me to a woman, Kristen Canty, who um, had tried to change the school lunches already. And she was like, if you want to try, I'll jump back in the ring with you, but it's really hard. And she was the one I had told about my son with eczema and she had had a son with asthma that she healed with, um, with raw milk. And I was just like, well, what is raw milk? I had never heard of mm-hmm. it, 
But at that point, and she told me about the Weston A. Price Foundation, and I still didn't really know what she was talking about. She had all these journals and things. And but I was so desperate. And she and her family had been driving around to these little this co-op and collecting raw dairy and um, farm fresh foods. And they would deliver them to my house. And I put my son on raw milk and cod liver oil. And he was like within two months completely healed. And that was my aha moment of just like real food just healed my child when every doctor really didn't have any solutions other than the Zyrtec and the steroid cream. And so then I was just like wanting to shout it from the rooftops and that everybody needed to know this information. And um, I became a Weston Price chapter leader. I went back to the Institute for Integrative Nutrition to get some sort of degree to, um, to teach people. So I started teaching moms out of my home and how, how to cook. I just sort of dove in and taught myself how to cook. I didn't grow up learning how to cook, but I went to a Weston Price conference and I remember seeing Sally Fallon speak and I'm sitting mm-hmm. there with like my latte, like listening and, and it all, she's just talking about the work of Dr. Price and it all just made sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've been duped my whole life. Like this, you know, I have to return back. And I walk out of the conference and the Amish are all set up with their, like, you know, their cheese and their sprouted nuts and um, their kefirs and their grass-fed beef and everything. I was just like, oh my gosh, the Amish. And I ended up running an Amish co-op out of my home for six years. And I really just became this passionate real food warrior to just try and help people wake up to the fact that Mm -hmm. food is healing and food is medicine. Um, And then um, my daughter has epilepsy. And so I'd heard Dr. Natasha Kimball McBride speak and I knew about the GAPS diet, which is the gut and psychology syndrome. So the gut brain connection. And, um, and we, at this point, you know, we're ready to try anything. And we dove into the GAPS diet, which is this very strict two-year protocol elimination diet. Um, and I was teaching cooking classes and a woman in my class was also on the diet and it was very, not exciting. Like it was, there was nothing really inspirational. Her book is genius, but like there was just no, I'm a visual learner. So there's no one like guiding me through. So we decided to write this book um, to kind of, so moms and dads could curl up in bed and be like, wow, we can eat real food, beautiful food, delicious food and heal. Yeah. And so we ventured onto that. I know it's getting long, but anyway, then I handed my book to the publisher. My husband at the time gets diagnosed with throat cancer. So our whole journey in health became, you know, way elevated where we rebuilt his whole immune system and detoxed and rebuilt. And we ended up moving to California to, you know, get out of stress, different way of life, a little sunshine, um, less invasive type of treatment. And, um, and we found, you know, a great school a nature-based school for my kids in Topanga, California, where really the food is what drew me there. The kids had caught their own fish and ate it that day. Mm-hmm. And the, the woman was like, I really want to roast a whole goat. And I was like, this is our place. And sure enough, we ended up going there. And then as the school grew, it was in its first year. And as it grew, they outsourced the food and um, it sort of went downhill. And I was just like, wait a minute, this is why we're here. And we're one of the reasons. And so I ended up kind of working my way, way in as the snack coordinator and then the lunch lady. And for the past five years, I've been serving up farm fresh, um, farm to school lunches, mm-hmm. um, which are really the way that we eat as a family at home. They're the way I feed company and have parties. It's just like real food, um, really simply prepared, but just with healthy fats and really emphasizing, um, you know, teaching these kids about proper nutrition and, and letting them experience it on a cellular level, like to know what it feels mm-hmm. like to integrate real food. And so then um, now we have a company called School of Lunch where we train lunch leaders. And my vision is to have, you know, 
an army of lunch leaders to sweep across the nation and disrupt the trend of chronic illness in this next generation of kids. So you don't have to aspire to be a lunch lady. You can take the information and go, you know, go off and do whatever you wish with it, whether it's in your own home or Mm -hmm. restaurant or community, YMCA, whatever. So that's my story. That's great. How I'm here. That's awesome. So I I think it's really key. And and I want to ask you guys both this question, but you both had like to borrow your words, elevated health situations where the interventions that you were trying were not working. Um, and so then you had to figure out something different because you didn't really have choices. There weren't good choices there. It was either sink or float. And so, but at the same time, you're, you're, you know, you make this part of your work, but you are also both um, really having to do this for real in your real life with real families And maybe, you know, there are listeners out there that aren't maybe addressing a chronic, a really serious health condition or chronic health condition, but want to prevent Mm, a chronic health condition. Terry, can you talk to me and, and tell me what that was like for you when you decided to go all in on these dietary changes with this was all an incremental process. So first when I'm diagnosed, I do the low fat diet uh, because that's all that there was uh, for MS, that was a swank diet. Then I went on the paleo diet, still declined. Uh, then I redesigned the paleo diet. I continued to read, learn, and continue to tinker with my health. Uh, and since I plan on living to 120, yeah. I'm doing that for another 60 years where I read, um, I decide to try an intervention, uh, see what symptom it is that I'm looking at and what the response is. And I would hope that your listeners would do the same, mm-hmm. that they will read, they will learn, they will decide they want to try an intervention. My suggestion is whatever intervention you try, whether it's meditation or mindfulness exercise, or you, you just take this very simple notion of I'll, I'll quit drinking sugar sweetened beverages, mm-hmm. actually do the intervention hundred yeah. percent for your defined length of time and then assess, did the symptom I'm concerned about improve or not? Mm-hmm. And then take on the next intervention that you want to try. Because certainly we will continue to learn new stuff. We'll get new insights and we will continue to refine my thinking. And I'm sure Hillary, likewise, you will continue to learn and refine your thinking as well. And you will look at, based on what's going on with my family, how am I going to know this intervention is moving our health journey in the direction that we want. Right. But one thing I, I want to get at is when you did start making these changes, you were doing this, not just as a physician, you were doing this as a mom. And well, so- you know, I, I was, I was doing these changes because I wanted to know that I was doing everything that I can. Yeah. Um, and at that time, I knew that I had a progressive illness. Um, my relapse remitted converted to secondary progressive. So all the interventions I was doing was not to cure myself because mm-hmm. I knew that was cure was not possible. Mm-hmm. And I knew that functions once lost were never coming back. Mm-hmm. I was doing all this stuff to slow my decline. And as a parent, I'm having to reimagine how I'm parenting my kids. Mm-hmm. And Hillary, I'm sure you, you know that you're, children may not listen to what you 
Yes. Do what you ask them to do, but they, but they are watching you very closely. They're hearing what you are saying and they will model your behavior of what it is that you actually do. So I was thinking deeply like, okay, if I want my kids to be resilient adults to realize that life's not fair, terrible things happen, shit happens. And I can either give up and like, okay, I'm going to be disabled and life is terrible. Woe is me. Or I could keep doing all that I can to slow it down and have the best life that is possible with them. So as I was getting more disabled, it's like, okay, I'll keep doing my little workout, even though it's getting smaller and smaller every day, I'll keep going to work. Um, I'll let my kids know that they have, they have real chores and jobs that the family relies on them to do because I can't do that stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. So important. Yeah. I mean, I would say, I love how you said you're experimented on yourself because I think that's so important. We're all so different. And sometimes when you're given a diagnosis, unfortunately, it feels like there's only one way out. And that's like, you know, maybe the conventional way. And instead of really giving people like I always say, when someone gets a diagnosis, just take a little bit of time. Like you're not going to drop dead in two days or a week. You know, it didn't take, it took a long time for you to get to this point. It's not going to, you know, didn't get here overnight and it's not going to be fixed overnight. But so you have to take a little time um, because you go into that fight or flight of like, I don't want to die and all these future tripping things of like, what ifs. And really, if people can, again, if we can understand the mechanisms of the human body and the microbiome and not in like the, you know, real, um, you know, it's, you can have a generalized understanding, understand that you do have some agency, you do have some power over, you have a lot of power over your health and wellness and the body is constantly seeking healing. Mm -hmm. So it's constantly trying to, you know, I've talked about this on podcasts too, where like, you know, you cut your finger and you don't tell it to go, you know, scab over and heal and fix itself. And like, we make a baby inside of us without every day saying, okay, now we need to do this. And these cells need to fuse and whatever, or the heart needs to be formed, whatever it happens. So the body is, so giving our, our bodies that respect that, um, that it deserves just like really, I guess my, my big aha, you know, in the, in this whole healing journey is to recognize that we really are nature. We're not separate from nature and we're just, as beautiful as anything that we look at from a butterfly to a mountaintop to um, a peacock, whatever. And we sit there in this like awe of how miraculous they are. But if we could unzip ourselves and just <laughs> see like what's going on. And then like, you know, we wouldn't pour gasoline around a tree and expect it to thrive or we wouldn't feed an animal, you know, rat poison expected to whatever it is. So we have to really, it's that basic. If you think about, and I know, you know, now we're kind of so far down the line with our health and our, our, um, you know, lack of health, I would say, especially with our children having roughly 54% with a chronic illness that we have to really wake up. And, um, unfortunately there is no like one size fits all, fix like everybody's going to have to start to experiment but i think that's where you can find joy in involving the whole family Mm -hmm. in taking ownership of of nourishing the family of health and making it this joyful 
um, realization that's kind of like this ancestral wisdom that's been cut off. And like I say, where are the ancestors in training? Our generation has to step in and relearn what we weren't, you know, what wasn't passed down. And because if we don't, it's just, it's gone. Right. And so there's so much Absolute, wisdom that, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think so, I think what's so important about what you're both saying is that a lot of times when a family or, or a person in the family needs to make changes for their health, so much of that burden falls on the shoulders of the mom. Yeah. And after the last two years, I literally don't know a single female, a single mother who's like, yeah, I want to take some more on. And so <laughs> are we going to survive? Yeah. <laughs> so it's just really key to like shift that understanding mm-hmm. of how you do this. It has to be a whole family event involving dad and the children and lots of conversations around everyone why- has to contribute. Everyone. You know, it, we talk about that a lot uh, in my clinics, in my clinical trials. If you want an intervention that is diet and lifestyle to be practiced by only one individual and everyone else does something else, that individual will struggle and will fail. It's right. If yeah. the family decides that they're all going to begin walking, yep. then they'll be successful. Yeah. If the family decides we're all going to do a meditative practice together or a gratitude practice together, they'll be successful. If the family decides here are the foods we're going to add to our diet and here are the foods we're going to remove from the household, the family will be very successful. That's right. Um, so we have a big conversation in my clinical practice uh, about the health benefits of the various things that we have to offer. And then the conversation is, are, here's the intervention that I'd most like to see you do. Is it something you can do? If so, great, we'll help you do that. If that's not something you can do, then what is a level of intervention that you could be successful at? Yep. Because people need to build on success. Yeah, if right. what they can su- successfully do is I'll go out and walk around the block every, every day, then that's where you start. That's right. You have to start where they can be, have success mm-hmm. yeah. and then build. Absolutely. You know, my old English teacher used to say to me in high school, Hillary, you can only eat an elephant one bite at a time. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, it just like rings true in my head because you really, you have to look at it like that and you have to take the wins when you get them and you can't expect that things will happen overnight. It is work. Um, and I just always invite people to step into the work when you are, um, it's much harder to step into the work when you have to step into the work. Yep. Or, uh, you well, know, actually it's, 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 it's much easier here, I guess, cause you have to, but now I have the desire, I guess. Yeah. Biologically human over the millions of years that we've been around and separate from primates, 6 million, 2 million as a genus homo, 250,000 as homo sapiens. Our brains are wired to seek out pleasure and comfort because it was really hard to get enough calories to have reproductive success. Yeah. And so we need to be mindful that if I ask you to give up pleasure and comfort, of course you're going to resist. Yep. That that's your, your, your whole brain is wired to resist. Yeah. And I, I, think I think that what, I think that what you're trying to, I mean, maybe I'm going to paraphrase this, but I think 
the important part here is that whether you step into it in the midst of a crisis or a diagnosis that's incredibly stressful, or you step into it before that, you know, each, each aspect of that or each different scenario is going to have different angles to it. And so if you can step into health changes or lifestyle changes to support preventative care, mm-hmm. um, that's excellent. That, that, well, the three of us understand how powerful that is. Mm-hmm. The public understands the pull of comfort and pleasure. True. Mm, true story. But I guess I would say there's so much, if you can look beyond today, there's so much pleasure and comfort that comes with owning your own health and having that, that well, agency. And, and then just to add one more quick thing, like, I feel like when we, when we entered our crisis mode, we really spent like all of our time and all of our money chasing health because a lot of the stuff that we wanted to do wasn't covered by insurance. And then you're like, well, maybe this will work. And if this will work, then the money's worth it. And maybe this will work. And so then you're just, you know, you're kind of like, well, fortunately, more of us are beginning to realize, uh, I'd say certainly in the last 10 years, in the last two years, that health is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, paying attention to diet, self-care routine is the underpinning of how we have more health. Right. Um, yeah. it, it, unfortunately, we'll still compete with comfort and pleasure and how we can let people know that you can still have great comfort, great pleasure and joy as you pursue health. Mm, and yes. I, I think that that applies differently to different audiences too, because I think about a lot of my listeners and a lot of the people that I work with, they're athletes. So they're used to sacrificing their comfort because they realize that it gives them some athletic advantages. Um, but I also, I think a lot of the motivation is that how do I do my sport as best as I can? Mm. And that requires good nutrition, good sleep, good hydration, all of the foundational pieces to wellness so there, you know, pe- different groups of people have different motivations. And so I, but I, I think the general public, the public at large is absolutely wired towards comfort and pleasure and versus ease, like convenience mm-hmm. and yeah. people are overwhelmed. And that was like, to your point about this all falling on the shoulders of one. And, um, it's, I, I, I interviewed a lot of elders to try and, um, kind of capture their wisdom and how they grew up eating and, um, and one of them, this 94-year-old French elder said to me, she said, Hillary, you can't dismiss that there are a lot of single working moms that are completely overwhelmed and just standing in line at the grocery store to get prepared foods. And so um, I think to, again, to go back to those baby steps and everybody is at a different spot in life. So whether you have the means to, you know, all of a sudden, switch everything, or you just want to find out where your egg farmer is, like whatever you can do today to mm-hmm. um, start to make small improvements. Because if you just add more overwhelmed, you're not likely to follow through and, and keep going with it, you know? Yeah. And the stress well, like the killer. Well, Hillary, I'm sure you and I would both feel uh, addressing nutrition is the most powerful thing you can do. Yeah. That's not what where everyone can start. Some right. people have to start uh, with a meditation mindfulness practice mm. or with more movement uh, before uh, and reduce their inflammation, reduce mm. their oxidative stress by addressing the cortisol from stress. Yeah. 
and the inflammatory aspects of being sedentary. And then they're better able to cope with the withdrawal they'll experience mm-hmm. from getting rid of sugar and yeah. uh, 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 making the dietary changes. I, I, I used to be very emphatic that you couldn't work with me unless you do the Wallace protocol for 100 days, 100%. Uh, then finally in my clinic, uh, we would still say, if you want to come to the group, you had to be all in 100% uh, on the diet for 100 days. But I would send you to the dietitian to work on your diet gradually, or to the physical therapist to work on increasing your physical activity, or to the health psychologist to work on stress reducing. Uh, and so you can work on whichever component you want to sort of gradually improve. And when you were ready to do the Walls Protocol 100% for 100 days, they could come be part of our big group class. Gotcha. Uh, and uh, what I learned. Uh, from my vets was that for some folks, depending where you are in your life, you have to start with movement or you may have to start with stress reduction. Yeah, you can't do it all at once. So this is a, this is a good segue. I, I, the conversation around genetics and epigenetics is really, really changing quickly. And one of the things I wanted to ask you was, do autoimmune conditions run in families and then you know, depending on your answer, I, I wanted to also talk to you about the connection between autoimmune conditions and trauma, because I know that there's science coming out around that. Um, and I'm well, talking about emotional trauma. So go ahead. And- I'm going to talk about trauma first. Okay. Uh, epigenetic marks from uh, stress related to food stress, uh, uh, psychological stress, physical stress, we know are carried for maybe five, six generations. Wow. So, um, uh, so whatever stressors I've had uh, happened to you know, my uh, great, great grandparents coming across uh, from yeah. Germany when my great, great grandfather lost his wife and first kids due to cholera on the boat. Uh, and then he was an indentured servant working along slaves and they could think about uh, all of our enslaved people globally absolutely, uh, and the trauma that they've had that have been passed on for four or five generations. Uh, yeah, and so that is huge. And that contributes to the uh, uh, economic disparities and the health disparities that yep. we see uh, on the basis of the health of your parents, your grandparents and your great grandparents that's epigenetic uh, imprinting. And if you've had early life stress Mm. or um, uh, child abuse or adverse childhood experiences, a markedly increased risk of diabetes, metabolic syndrome, heart disease, autoimmune disease, anxiety, and depression. Mm, Absolutely, yeah. Then if we wanna talk about genetics for autoimmunity, uh, there are 200 to 300 different genes that are identified that put you at higher risk for developing an autoimmune problem and a different 200 or 300 different genes depending on the specific autoimmune disease. Most people with that particular gene don't get the autoimmune disease. So always Mm. there's the genetics that you probably got an infection with one or more microbes that uh, was the second step. And then the third step is the lifetime, lifetime of diet, physical activity, 
toxins, uh, stressors, physical, emotional, uh, social networks, their biological effects in the random events that happen in our lives. Mm, right. That lead to, uh, did I develop an autoimmune problem? What comorbid diagnoses did I have? And what additional autoimmune problems I'll develop if I don't get to these root causes? Yeah, I always say it's like, well, like genetics loads the gun, lifestyle posts the trigger. And like, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I forget what I was going to say, but I think it's so important to, um, to acknowledge, you know, that like, like I have a daughter who has epilepsy and I feel like she carried a gene because her uncle on her dad's side and great grandfather have epilepsy. So um, at four, she started having seizures and then um, petite mal seizures and then four, 10 till now 18, she's had grand mal seizures. And I feel like for 14 years, I was just saying to you, I've been trying to like switch the gene off, like something switched the gene on and, you know, and so we've tried all these diets and all these protocols and the poor, you know, child has been through so many different healing protocols that at, at some point I've realized that the stress that that causes on a child to have to be constantly feeling like something's wrong with you and that you need right. to heal something and that, you know, so I've gotten to the point where um, I heard this Dr. Cassie Huckabee saying the other day that your lifestyle is your medicine. And that's what ultimately I've said to my daughter that, you know, your seizures may never fully go away. I mean, we always hope that they do. We do everything with her lifestyle. And really she's learned such powerful tools through her life, like the heart math solution and just the the breathing. And I know what I was going to say. I was going to say that when you have, when my husband got diagnosed with cancer, it was like, really, I, I felt like you have to have an emotional, physical and spiritual approach to it all, because it's not just one thing. You really have to dig for kind of the, the traumas or the things that you, that you can potentially try and kind of peel back the layers of the onion, because there's so much that, um, that goes into, you know, all of a sudden uh, a diagnosis, you know, it didn't, again, it didn't happen overnight. So it's these kind of layers of things that, that happen. And if we can slowly start to take one control of one sort of aspect of it, like even with my daughter, the heart math solution is this little app that she could clip to her ear. And then it showed up on her phone and she did this like whole breathing thing until her nervous system went back into coherence. And now she doesn't need the apparatus. She just, she's like, mom, I know how to do it. I know how to control my nervous system. So certain tools like that, you know, to help, you know, that may trigger when life triggers certain responses or fight or flight, or, you know, it's so important. And, and certainly we've all had trauma in our lives. Somebody said um, to me, a medical intuitive had said, my mom had lost her sister and husband in a car accident and leaving a party at my parents' house. And um, she fell asleep at the wheel and they both were killed. And my parents adopted their two kids that were two months old and four, three years old at the time. And this medical intuitive said to me like, well, how old were you when that happened? And I said, well, I wasn't born yet. And she said, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Like, and I was at that point back in Massachusetts, hadn't had any sort of healing awakening quite yet. And now I see that that fear, I mean, a lot of trauma was imprinted on my Mm -hmm. genes. Right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, maybe that effort to try and save somebody or whatever it may be, but um, it's interesting. It's so interesting to me to even think about generations of trauma being passed down and like what potentially I 
I just have had no idea of this for most of my life. So I think the more we wake up and we just open our eyes to like all that goes into everything and not shame ourselves for it, but really embrace how we can sort of sort of try and prevent what may, you know, what we may pass down to this next generation. And certainly diet is a huge, plays a huge role in, you know, the health of our microbiome is the first thing that we pass on when that baby goes through birth canal. So, yeah. And I mean, back to the, back to the, you know, Terry, you broke down the kinds of trauma really well and the body receives that all the same way. And I think what's really important too, is we're kind of trundling through this period in time right now is that we understand how important it is for us to sort of minimize the blow of this experience, how we treat ourselves and each other as a community of people, um, all over the world. Um, one thing I wanted to ask, cause I'm aware of the time here and I just want to make sure that I get this in and we're talking, I just want to touch on this really quick. You know, we've been all kind of going through something the last 22 months, mm-hmm. every person out there, um, Terry, for you, what has, what has been discouraging for you and what has given you hope? Um, well, uh, we're certainly um, resilient as a species. Uh, what has been disappointing has been the political division mm. over um, uh, public health measures, the political division over um, uh, how to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I guess that's probably naive. Uh, we have always been political, science is political. There's always a lot of fighting who has the right answer, who has the wrong answer. Yeah. Uh, and that is sort of the nature of humanity is that we uh, have ideas, we fight, fight amongst them. Uh, and eventually one idea uh, uh, becomes more widely accepted. Um, It's been difficult to watch so many people in my institution at the uh, university hospitals um, be so severely stressed Mm. by um, the number of young people that come in. uh, very ill, the number of young people that are continuing to come in uh, very ill uh, uh, and that will have long-term health consequences and be potentially uh, not employable or not able to interact well with their family. Mm-hmm. Uh, the family responsibilities, uh, that's in- incredibly uh, painful to watch mm-hmm. uh, in the level of burnout in my uh, medical colleagues, uh, incredibly high. Uh, that's been very difficult. Uh, on the other hand, the positive, uh, I think uh, there are more more people, not enough, but more people willing to say, what you eat matters, mm-hmm. uh, vitamin D matters, yeah. um, uh, sugar is a problem. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, that's the positive. And before I move on to that part, this question with Hillary, I want to ask you if you feel free to answer how, how would it have changed things now if we had included some simple low tech 
messaging around taking care of ourselves, where do you think we would be at or how, it, and that's all speculation. So it's. Um, you know, I, I think there was messages um, that was put out there in terms of uh, uh, doing self-care. Um, uh, the role of vitamin D uh, it's not universally uh, understood or accepted. I, I wish there'd been a lot more enthusiasm for the importance of vitamin D. Um, uh, there, there is research about the benefits of bifidobacter bacteria. Um, uh, that's in uh, kefirs, uh, kimchi, and sauerkraut that the integrated medicine community uh, latched on to and understands uh, very well. But uh, has not been disseminated uh, in the conventional world uh, very well. Uh, and that has to do with how, how slow the process is to create a uniform standard of care for clinical practice sure. that is true across any major change in how we treat any disease and uh, because of the pressures of what was happening, uh, I, I can understand why that did not happen. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's unfortunate, uh, but that is the uh, reality of how practice patterns change sure. in, uh, in reality. Yeah, thanks. That's really important information. Um, I, can't, I think we've all been trying to understand more about how those changes happen, where they come from, at the rate at which they come. Um, Change happens very slowly. You have the innovator, early adopter, late adopter, and the, and the laggard. And um, it took us 200 years to learn that um, lemon juice and sauerkraut would prevent scurvy. Mm, right. It took us 25 years to figure out um, H. pylori is a cause of uh, stomach ulcers. Um, uh, and so it, th there's always a lot of resistance to new ideas. Uh, and, you know, the fact that in just 10 years, I've gone from being, you know, severely condemned for talking about diet and lifestyle to autoimmune patients to being heralded now as this brilliant uh, uh, visionary that there's more diet and lifestyle research and multimodal research in autoimmunity happening. So 10 years to my followers feels like a very, very long time, mm -hmm. but in the science world, that's really very fast. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, and you're talking about finding clinical, you know, funding studies to provide. Correct. Correct. So, so we, we've been getting uh, funding. Uh, we've gotten funding from, uh, it's philanthropic support from private donors who have funded small studies uh, and some very large studies uh, to the MS Society that funded a very large study. We continue to write grants to the NIH for multi-million dollar studies. And as a matter of fact, as soon as I get off this phone call, I'm going to go back to working on my grant because it's due next week. So okay, well, so we'll wrap we'll, it up here. <laughs> we, we will keep writing the grants and we will get funded. Because I, I, I've gone from being, you know, severely, severely criticized uh, to now just being sort of mildly criticized in my <laughs> grants. So, you know, we're, we're going to get funding. And the concepts I'm talking about, which were inconceivable 
10 years ago when I started these grants uh, are now uh, uh, talked about and uh, there are more literatures that I can cite. And of course, I have many more of my own studies that I yeah. can cite. Yeah, mm. true. Well, that's fantastic. And I appreciate your time today. And I appreciate all of the ways that you have put your heart and soul and your whole existence into understanding this better and making changes on a very big scale. And uh, I just really appreciate what you're doing. So thank mm, you so much. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you. Keep rocking it. Thank you. Okay. So we, I just want to get to this part about looking backwards. You know, right. we always look like backwards. two years of, we always look backwards and then coming at this from the aspect of a mother and somebody who's in the health and like on the preventative side of health, you want, you know, you look backwards and you think what in the world were we doing? And I think that we will, we will. Oh, there yes. will come a day very soon where we all are going, what <sighs> will, in the because hell that were we doing one back thing then? about technology is that there's so much information written and video there's so much information that people will come across you know why was the censor why didn't we see this why wasn't this the narrative or whatever it, it may be I was just it was so funny because you said looking back I literally was going on a hike like yesterday maybe or two days ago and I don't know why this popped into my head but a song from like seventh grade that my English teacher on some camping trip was playing with his guitar tell me who sings it it's like in the seasons they go round and round Oh, yeah. And the painted ponies go up and down. Joni Mitchell. Is that who it is? Yeah. We're captured on a carousel of time. We can't return. We can only look behind from where we came and go round and round and round. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. So it's just like really like I don't know why it popped into my head, but I was like, we can't return. We can only look behind from where we came, which is so true. It's like, you know, we're going to. We, we can't go back. So how do we move forward with those lessons mm -hmm. that we've gained over the last however many months or years? And um, I, I guess the discouraged, most discouraging thing for me is the lack of freedom of speech and the censorship mm -hmm. is that many, many, many of the people that led me into this entire journey to to health, to find health for my family have had their voices silenced, right. which is yeah. like so disheartening because if I didn't have access to that, my, who knows where my life path right. would have gone. And mm -hmm. so I think, you know, allowing us to be intelligent humans and to discern truth and to follow our inner knowing is really important. And when you don't have the whole story to things or those empowerment and tools, to, to, that's what I was going to say to give people power in situations where they feel that they have none. And, yeah, you know, for like, me, that was my experience with like the, the, the voices that got silenced is that those were places where I cut my teeth on right, health. And exactly. what that gave me was agency mm -hmm. in my own body. Right. And that was hugely beneficial for me and my, my emotional well being. Yeah. I felt like I was finally on a good path. Yeah. And so then to turn that down. Yeah. That yeah, was it's so hard icky. because there's I mean, nothing, you know, I mean, there's nothing better than, um, there's no greater gift than, than health and to have a healthy baby. I mean, when you have a baby who's struggling or a child who's struggling, I'm sure many of your parents out there can attest to this, that it's torture mm -hmm. and you just mm -hmm. want to find an answer. And so yeah. to limit the amount of information out there that right. may not work for everybody, but may work for some people is really criminal, I think, and on so many levels. Um, 
And, and I think the other thing that's been super hard for me with five teenagers is the watching the, um, the, their path deeper into screen time and having zoom school and then having just this developing this addiction or this dopamine response to like, these are the, this is what makes me happy. This is what I want to return to. This is what, you know, cause there's, there's no way to be bored when you have the universe at your fingertips, you can always find something. And so it's really as a mom, again, it's another thing to manage yeah. that just almost, you know, is that stressor that can cause whatever's going on into your body to kind of flip on that response. That's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And so we can't, we can only do so much. So I've had to like, let a lot go. Um, but I've also really recently realized I was listening to Charles Eisenstein who wrote the more beautiful world our hearts know mm -hmm. as possible. I love him. And, and he was saying, you know, what, what is mine to do? So here I have this, like, mm -hmm. I feel compelled to try and change the world or inspire people and like wake people up to this, you know, way of eating and that they can own their own health and they can, you know, find their local farmers. And it is so comforting. And what was the other word, Terry is comforting and comfort Comfort and, and pleasure, pleasure. And, um, it's such a, like food brings people together. Like I've just found yeah. so many great friends and community revolving around food. Um, and that's, you know, just so important. So, um, and, and for a lot of people, food is not joyful. Food is a source of stress and anxiety, a, yeah. which is so unfortunate. And those are big, but I just, I guess I'm offering that up because I, I want to acknowledge that it's a problem, but I also want to acknowledge that you can heal that that is not a place where you have to live. No. You don't have to be rigid about food. You don't have to be following, mm -hmm. you know, in the gaps, it's miserable. Diet, it is. Well, I mean, the gaps diet was different. If you're on a healing you're protocol, a, then you're, you kind you're, of, you're, you're on a different path. dive into, but you are heal. following a lot of rules. And for a lot right, of people, that is really hard, especially if their relationship with food, like so many women is already challenged mm. because of the way, like you were on the when fat went, free yeah. diet for a long time. And I was on that. You ever thought I was going to go through like a quart of lard in the first like two weeks of the gap diet. I was just like, this is so crazy to me, but I was just like, geez, like everything was just falling off me. And I was like, oh my gosh, like it just opened my eyes that yeah. fat is not the enemy. And in fact, you, you need it. But I think, you know, that's one of the reasons like at school, we feed the kids, we don't eliminate any food group. And that's something I love about the Weston Price Foundation is that nothing's eliminated, nothing's forbidden. It's just, you want to make sure you're, you're sourcing the best you can and that you're properly preparing things, you know, with like fermenting or soaking your beans and your nuts so that you do that work that's so hard for the body to do. You do it outside of the body so that you make, you know, it easier mm -hmm. to be digested and absorbed Absolutely. in the inside. But for everybody who's struggling to step into the work, um, again, I just say, um, even with the GAPS diet, I wrote in the book, the hardest part of the GAPS diet is deciding to do it mm -hmm. because it's mm -hmm. just like, shit, my, oosh, sorry, but my oh, whole, no, you can, my, whole, <laughs> my whole life is going to change. I don't know if I can do this and I don't want to change, but um, it's sort of like this blip in your life. You know, we did it for two years. Not everybody has to do it for two years. Some people heal by doing this, you know, the full gaps diet, which is much like a paleo diet. It's not really super restrictive. And, and this is to treat specific, like this um, is to, this is to reclaim to heal your, your gut. gut. Yeah. And so, so many things, so many things up stem you... up from that. And, and I think one of the things that a lot of parents out there are grappling with is like um, behavioral issues with their children mm -hmm. and, and, there's so many sources of agitation for our kids, but, um, you know, really 
I think a lot of, and this is something I, I really want to get your words on, but I think a lot of moms are sitting out there trying to figure out one, is this important enough for me to do like that? Like we've already talked about, there's thousands of things on the shoulders of mothers, but is this important enough for me to really take on? And how do I really get in there and advocate? Cause I think a lot of mothers are worried about being weird, but you really well, kind of have like to step away from that's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> She's weird. No, yeah. well, it's not the norm. And I think the other thing is like, you know, when I had my triplets, but then, but then let's hold on for a second for yeah. any mom out there listening. What's normal. Look at, look well, at look what, what's become. Normal. Look at what has become normal. I don't want to be any part of that. It right. is like we've normalized but food is disease. so sensitive for people and it's so um, personal, yeah. you know, so there's a lot of cultural things. Yeah. There's a lot of yeah. family heritage. There's just, just a lot of comfort that comes from food trauma can trigger, you know, so it's, it's so personal. So when people feel like you're, if like, if you decide to make changes for me, this happened, I decided to make changes. And I think a lot of people felt like, like I was shaming them or judging them because they weren't making the same changes when really I was just like, I just want to, I've just woken up to this. And this is like something I really want to do for my family, but it comes off as sort of elitist or, you know, you can't, especially if you're on a healing protocol, it's like, you can't go to someone's house and just eat whatever they serve. Or send your kid off to a birthday party. Right. So you have to be kind of strict, but then again, you're, when you go through it and you actually heal, then you're giving them the freedom for the rest of their lives, hopefully to be able to go to that person's mm-hmm. house and not have mm-hmm. and eat whatever they want and not have a reaction mm-hmm. and not be struggling with some sort of autoimmune or IBS. I mean, so many teenagers now are struggling with IBS and it's yeah. just like, Oh, well, I have this. It's just normal to or say anxiety and, and depression. Yeah. And we're talking about like with our young people, some really serious neuropsychiatric disorders. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't even know this, but I just discovered that um, some eating disorders fall into the category of um, a neuropsychiatric disorder yeah. um, because like, well, gaps was, will say they talk about yeah. um, anorexia and the gut brain connection. Yeah. So it really is a lot in your brain and that you're, you know, which is off. scary to think about, but then also empowering once you accept it mm-hmm. and say, well, shit, I can do a lot here. I can do something here. Yeah. I can't just, I don't have to just, you know, yeah, I, I won't get like, too far into the weeds with that. We're but. like super organisms. So we're mm-hmm. like, we have trillions of bacteria, fungi, viruses, parasites, like living within us. We're really like 10% human. So if you can kind of disengage from or engage with the fact that you're not in this alone and that you really have this, but we have agency, right? So we have this obligation to try and keep everybody happy in there. And that's our, that's what is making up our immune system. So you can explain it to little kids kind of like that too. Like this is your like internal army. These mm-hmm. are like, you know, you have to feed your little warriors and these are what keep you strong. Um, there's so many ways you can talk to kids about it, but I think parents have to ultimately kind of understand the value first and foremost. And I think a lot of people, it's hard because with mainstream medical advice, it's typically a, a drug intervention. Right. And so for parents, I remember like with my triplets being born, I just like, I was such a newbie and I was just like, so afraid of anything happening. Like, all of a sudden you're responsible for these little humans and you're like, Oh my gosh, I can don't you, know enough. Can you explain to the listeners your, so you started out with triplets. Yeah. So I got thrown <laughs> right to the wolves <laughs> and then yeah. you had two more, two so we more. had five so, under four. So you had 
yeah. triplet pregnancy and then you had a twin pregnancy. No, they no. were 15 months apart. Oh my God. I, so I still, like I, you know, I've read this a thousand times, but I still can't keep it straight. So I that's can't, amazing. but now they're teen, five teenagers and I'm like, I don't know what's harder. Like people would say <laughs> yeah. that to me, like the younger is more physical, the older is more emotional, which is so true. Yeah. Um, and certainly it's a hard time to have teenagers right who now. think they know everything, you know? So it's like, you just want to guide them and keep them safe. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, like typically you'd think like, oh, they, they might poo poo what you're serving them or like, oh, my mom's crazy. She, everything is healthy. And then they go off the rails in college, but then they circle back. Absolutely. But now, you know, so I just, I'm in that spot right now. I'm you like, are, please yeah. tell me they're going to circle back. You know, they do. It's how they break up with you. Right. Come, they, they I know. They're like, I'm like, don't you want to hang out with me? They're like, mm, no, <laughs> <laughs> they break but heart. I, but to that point, <laughs> I have like, with what is, what is mine to do? Going back to that yeah. question is I've really tried to, um, I was feeling really afraid being like full on working as the lunch lady, like 10 hours a day with a long commute and then coming home and trying to do like dinner and feed, I mean, and homework and, you know, just regroup and replenish myself. And then, you know, I'm trying to feeling pressure, like I have to be an advocate for health and be on Instagram and, you know, I'm not doing enough. And so I really just totally stepped back and thought, you know, as I watched my kids, you know, dive into their screens or trying to, I, I just felt like the, the wheels were off the car would I always get those things wrong, but whatever that is, it's just like the best thing that I can do is take care of myself. It's like that oxygen mask, right. And take care of my little unit because it can get really overwhelming. I mean, God, it's overwhelming to try and change your little unit, but then to try and change however other people think or what they do or how to inspire them. It's, it's, I think sometimes the best thing you can do is just lead by example and build that other kind of boat, show that other way. And like someone said, if you don't have it all together in your own home and you're trying to preach something to everybody else, like you're not really doing a great job. And so I really had to like, look at like, okay, like I don't want everything to just fray at the, I don't want to be frazzled all the time. So I want to be home and being able to cook for my family. I want to take that time to, and I've been making sure my kids are involved with all the, um, the food. So like as a parent, you have to kind of, it's like a long journey, right? And right. so you can't go back, mm-hmm. but you can adjust and you can, you know, my kids have always been involved with the food since they were little cracking eggs on the counter or whatever. But um, I was noticing sort of like, we're all just like coming home, sitting down, eating, and they're talking about video games and they're up and like, I'm just like, wait a minute, this isn't what I signed up for and this isn't what I've tried to cultivate for the last like 17 years and yeah. so you have to kind of rein it in every once in a while and and regroup and and look at your quality of life and what's what's really important like what do you want to have as your daily experience you know absolutely and I think just to to touch base one more you know to get back to that looking backwards mm-hmm. aspect if Hillary Boynton could issue a public health message oh, to get gosh. us through the pandemic if we could just maybe pretend there you were the only one issuing one, what would it be? <laughs> how would oh. we, how would, what would be the accessible, approachable, mm. effective, low tech approach yeah. to going back 22 months? What would, how would we do this? I would say if you could tell, if I could tell everybody, every person to buy what you can afford and cook real food. Yeah just keep it. And like my French elder that I talked about, she said to me, she said, Hillary, I always say this. She said, simplicity is gourmet. And that has like really stuck with me. I'm like, it needs to be in my hub someday because it's so true. It doesn't have to, I think some people like 
with the food network and all the food magazines and stuff, we get this like vision that it has to be this Martha Stewart photo worthy five hours in the kitchen. Yeah. And it's like, really there's systems. This is what I aim to teach lunch leaders and people is that once you get your kitchen rhythms and your systems, it's like really pleasurable to be like, wow, I just banged out like two loaves of sourdough and I fed my keeper. And I, you know, for some people that's like, no. Wait, what? You know, a hundred or it's like, I found my egg farmer or whatever your little step is, is so important. And I can say, um, you have to earn your street cred. You have to step into the work and you have to find the joy in the work because I think personally to be able to grow up and to see your kids carry on and or to be healthy and strong. I mean, my kids really have not, um, like I just said to somebody the other day, like, well, he's never been on an antibiotic before. And they're like, and this is my child who's 14 now. And they're like, He's never been on an antibiotic. And I don't think, I think my triplet boys were on when they were like baby babies and they had their first ear infection and I panicked and didn't know any better. Sure. But then I learned. And so none of my kids have had, like, they've really maintained pretty vibrant health just through diet and lifestyle. And they've had a lot of stressors that have happened with dad with cancer and whatnot. And so um, I've seen the power of food as medicine. This is sort of one of my things, I've seen the power of food as medicine. And I've seen the destruction of disease or from disease and when you spend all that time and money chasing health, it's just, if you can prevent that, yeah. if you can have that, the $50 million or whatever question is, how do you wake people up before the wake up call that frying pan to the head of that cancer diagnosis or, and I often say like this whole pandemic is a like ultimate wake up call to humanity, that this is our wake up call that yeah. you have, you know, we're sort of Actually, and I wanted to say too, I'm reading Jane Goodall's book of hope. And she was the first person whose book, like maybe 15, almost 18 years ago or more, no, 18, probably her book, Harvest for Hope was the first book that really gave me an inside look or look inside to the food system and the corruption in the food system. And I had my eyes open and then I was at like Target the other day and saw her book now that's called Book of Hope. And I was just like, oh, I have to get that. And um, and she said the four things that keep her hopeful right now mm. are the amazing human intellect, number one. Number two, the resiliency or the resilience of nature. Number three, the power of young people. Mm. And number four, the indomitable human spirit. Mm-hmm. And I can say mm. truly, like when I started this year, we've we've typically fed fourth through 12th grade kids. And now we're feeding K through 12. And, you know, the first week of school, it's like, it's all real beautiful food that a lot of kids are very unfamiliar with. It's not your chicken nuggets or whatever they're used to getting or pizza or whatever. It's just real farm fresh foods and everything's there, you know, and, and and, and, and you'll be tagged in this post, but I just, for anybody out there listening, go and look at Hillary's post because it is. There's there's it's kindergartners with plates of greens beautiful and plates. soup and meat. And the, you know, you know, it, it, those kids are going back to class and they're having an awesome oh, day because so they're fed. Exciting. Their body is not in stress because of food that it's not recognizing. Yeah. Their their minds are engaged. They're because totally their body, satiated. Their they don't ask there. for dessert. They're like, they're really satisfied. And I've seen, yeah. literally seen the transformation with my own eyes. And I've seen the success, like the first couple of weeks, you know, the teachers are like, well, they're, they're going to be hungry if they don't eat this. Cause sure enough, there are those kids that are like, uh, not, not I don't that. want to yeah. touch that. I don't like that. I don't know what that is. And you have to make it fun. And that's the part that I love. I love these little kids and I love like goofing around with them and getting them to try new things. And, you know, I'm like, just give me two weeks, give me two weeks. And in two weeks, they're like 
showing me their plates. Look what I made, Miss Hillary. And they're like, they're putting, trying new things. And, you know, I say, you guys, like to the kindergartners, I'm like, you know, it's 2022 now. And you know what year that is? This is the year of trying new things, you know? And so then they're like, oh, okay. And they get all excited about it. But they're going to remember this. Absolutely. And they're going to know how they feel. And they feel loved. Like, yeah. I think a lot of food is made out of just necessity to feed yeah. instead of made with intention. Purchased, our food goes, you know, it's grown and raised with intention. We've prepared it lovingly um, and deliberately with like, you know, with ancestral wisdom and, and those practices in place. And then we serve it up with excitement and joy. We have so many colors and it's just so, it's the experience that you would want. Like I think back of like all the school lunches that I made for my own kids. And like, if I could send my kids, I basically created what I would have, what I was dreaming about all those years of making yeah. school lunches. Yeah. Like every yeah. mom is just like, <laughs> and then when I have to make my kids now, they've got going to a different school and I have to make like two school lunches. Actually, I'm trying to get them to make their own, but I'm like, it's almost easier and more fun to feed 150 50, kids yeah. than to make two so school right. lunches. <laughs> you are so right. And I think, you know, just to address the question and, and make sure everyone knows you are feeding children food that is local mm -hmm. um, because you guys have, like we have in Missoula, tons mm -hmm. of local food. Yeah. How, knowing what you know, I mean, your school funding is privately funded. You know enough about the school lunch program to know what the challenges are in the, in the, in the public school system. What sort of information or words of encouragement could you offer up to anybody out there who's trying to work through the red tape and trying to mm -hmm. work through, I mean, I think what's really important is to develop relationships with people who are sitting there, you know, are, are, are in powers, positions of power or in positions of leadership mm -hmm. to develop relationships with them and seek them out and try to find a way to get them to understand that the solution to their pain points is local food. Yeah. I think it's, you're absolutely right. I think I remember Sally Fallon, who's the founder of the Western Price Foundation, she came and spoke in Massachusetts and I was like, oh, I want to change school food. And she like looked at me and like <laughs> held my hand and was like, just pack your own kids lunches and like, you know, do your best that yeah, way. Just throw the, like, just throw the towel in. And I was like, no way. And, you know, I kept going and I literally banged my head against the wall for like 10 years. It felt like it was just like, we finally got a great chef in there. And then he, his wife had a baby and they moved. And then we started back at ground zero and all of us parents were like, uh, like we can't do it again. Like it wasn't, and it wasn't a perfect fix. It just, it's, it's so, it's so daunting. And I think what needs to happen is there has to be an appeal to the hearts That's right. of adults because yeah. there's no, there's no, we can come up with a million excuses, yeah. right. That we can't afford it or it's too massive of a system or there's too many kids or there's too many, too much, this, that, whatever, it's too hard but it's not right. Like, it's just not right. Yeah. So we're smart, creative people. And there's a lot of abundance in this world. Right. And so when we set our intentions and we really understand what a disservice we're doing for the future generations by feeding them, um, you know, ultra processed, highly palatable. We're basically pushing them or driving them straight into a life of being in the medical system. Absolutely. So it's like what, like it baffles me because it just doesn't, 
it's so heartbreaking. And some of these kids are really dependent on that food as their only nourishment for breakfast and lunch and snack. And, and I know what that must, I don't know how that feels, but I know I can imagine what it feels like when that's the food that people are, I mean, and, and I don't have anything against lunch ladies. I think they're all doing the best they can with the resources they have. They're really lovely people who are usually love children and want to feed them. But it's, um, you know, we say healthy chefs, healthy kids, and we've worked really hard to, we did a whole citizen science project where we put blood glucose monitors on. Mm. Um, We got a grant to do it and we put them on ourselves as chefs. We put them on the kids, we put them on the parents, on the staff. And we really wanted to just empower people with the information to know how food affects their blood glucose levels and their, their ultimately their health. And so for a chef, a lunch lady or lunch leader to see if they were to wear a a monitor and eat the food that they're feeding day after day after day and see what that does to them internally. There's no way if you have a conscience that you could feed that every day. That's amazing. I would love to get the information. Yeah. Yeah. We can give you more. And it was just so empowering. And so I think, um, it's again, it comes back to that overwhelm. And so we do need the higher ups and we need people, but you know, sometimes I feel like it's like the, the school system is doing what it's going to do the you know, the public school systems and, um, you know, an intern came and worked with us the other, like a couple of weeks ago. And she had just come from working at a giant public school system where they had 15 minutes to get like 1500 kids through the line. And I'm like, I can barely get the kindergartners through in 15 minutes, but it's that again, it's like, what's your priority? Is it just to give them something, to give them something to say that they've been quote unquote fed or is it like, let's educate and let's take a little bit more time because this is the most important education that they can receive. And essentially, right. And I mean, there's a whole host of things to talk about there because what are the priorities? And if we really wanted to make this an enriching experience, you know, obviously teaching life skills, especially at the Mm -hmm. elementary school is so important. I mean, actually, you know, middle school and high school. I mean, these are there's all opportunities and places to teach people how to engage with food. I mean, it's so oh, it's important. So, it's so cool and fun, and yeah. And it's not. It's so. It's such multi-dimensional learning, and mm-hmm. and. But like, um. When you think about the public school system, I think that right now, because things are so turned over and turned up and raw, and the opportunities yeah. are. I think that if there is ever a time in history to make changes to this program, now is that time. Well, I was just talking about this yesterday with with Chuck, my boyfriend and business partner, who's in charge of all of our sourcing. And um, and, you know, he's at the farmers markets multiple times a week. And I was just like, I don't. I think it's actually it's a harder time, although it's more eye opening and we know now more than ever, health is important. They're so overwhelmed with trying to navigate everything Mm -hmm. that they wouldn't possibly put. They don't have an ounce of time to put, they they didn't have an ounce of time and now they don't even have like a fraction of an ounce of time to put towards that. And so, you know, what I tried to do was like, I believe you, you know, you build a a better boat or another boat and you lead by example and you show, like I got my foot in the door at this small little school and I can show what can be done, but ultimately people have to want it. And there are also plenty of, you know, alternative schools and charter schools and private schools and Mm -hmm. that could jump on the the bandwagon and really have the means to do this, but they're not doing it. Right. They're, they're buying the same, 
you know, process food supply. Yeah, the supply yeah. as the public schools. Mm-hmm. So that's really challenging for me and that they don't um, prioritize it. Mm. So I think um, it's, it I, seems I, so obvious to us. It and, does seem so obvious to us, but I do think that it's so important to, to identify, you know, these are the pain points that you are experiencing as a mm-hmm. school. And, and this yeah, just and if is you the have solution. Kids, with behavior problems. Exactly. This is your solution. Yeah. This is, I can say without a doubt, like these kids come to the line, they're engaged, they're happy. They look you in the eye. They're not depressed. They're not anxious. They're, I mean, in their nature connected, they're outside. So I would say, you know, the more we can get our kids outside is so huge. And, um, and right now, especially connecting with one another, we're losing this human connection, which is making things even more challenging. So for any head of school, any head of you know, anybody who has a say in the game right yeah. now, yeah. I think is obligated or, you know, it's like, what, what do you want your legacy to be? Yep. That's right. You know, and like, it, there's nothing more important than a healthy next generation of kids yep. and we're robbing them of that. Yep. And food is, there are so many beautiful farmers and food purveyors doing amazing work. That's People right. are really getting into it. And so that's what really was upsetting to me that we're not promoting this from the real higher ups and that, and kids are smart from little, little kindergartners. They know what's real. And so they, you know, that gets imprinted on them. We're changing their cells every day. And I say to the kids, I'm like, we're building brains, you guys, like, let's do this. (laughs) And the little thank you notes we get, like I just got one the other day was like, thank you for opening up my taste buds. You know, like they're so cute. And and, and they get it. They're smart. And they are. And I think that it's also really important to identify that the people working in the current food system in the public schools would feel so much more fulfilled oh. if they were able to do their job in a way that is in line with their heart. Yeah. Because right now that's not the case. I think we have to say like, you know, they're always like my hands are tied. My hands are tied. And I think we got to like take the handcuffs off and start thinking, you know, like really just start I always, I, I, and I agree. And I think the, the thing for me that's been really frustrating this whole time is that I worked in a high liability, um, and, uh, high risk job for a really long time. And if I listened to and waited for the direction of the person who had more authority than me to give me instructions on what to do in times of crisis, I would be dead and I would be responsible for the Mm. death of other people. And maybe death isn't necessarily the consequence of not stepping outside of your lane and doing something in a moment of crisis. Maybe that's not the consequence in this situation, but it's kind of like slow death Mm. maybe is the thing. Um, But it is, that is, we have um, the, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics has still issued the state of emergency for our children's mental health. You know, there are so many people hearing, why aren't people waking up? Why are we not responding to that? Mm -hmm. And and we have really left children in a lurch during this pandemic and I can't stand for it. I can't stand it. I can't stand for it. I can't stand behind it. Um, And so I think if the government really wanted to step in and offer up some meaningful solutions, um, I would be supportive and on board with that. But in 22 months, I haven't seen that happen. And I'm, I'm frustrated and furious and I'm done. Well, and yeah. so, so the thing I guess I want to ask you, and, and we can wrap it up mm-hmm. here, but I want you to give the listeners an idea. You 
have had to go counterculture almost to, to advocate for your children's health and well-being. Mm-hmm. And right now, mainstream culture is sending us messages that to me don't look right. And I think there's a lot of moms out there that are like, this doesn't look right, but they can't find their voice. What's your experience? How can you help those mothers find their voice and speak up and advocate when they need to, which we all need to? Yeah, I think I mean, a couple of things um, with kids in this time, especially with teenagers, you know, I can advocate so much, but I have three 18 year olds that are going to go off on their own, which is terrifying to me. So empowering them has been my goal. Um, And, you know, you're kind of up against a a mainstream narrative that you're, so it's like almost like my whole (laughs) like career has been like Terry was saying, you know, you're, you're almost like vilified for Mm. preaching, you know, not even necessarily preaching, but trying to inspire people to do, to just try new things, a new way or whatever. And so with my kids, I I really hope that they, um, and this is what we want to create in with all kids is that they're, they're critical thinkers. I think we're, we're losing that ability to discern and we're trusting and we're not asking questions. I said to my kids, like layer questioning shame onto asking questions. Yeah. I say question everything. Do not do anything to your body. I would say to any child, don't put anything in your body without questioning, you know, what, what it is and do you need it? Because Mm -hmm. once, you know, you only get one body. And I say that to the kids, your body is your temple. And I've said that to my kids recently now, you know, they're like, Oh, the gaps diet. We'll never do that again. You know, they're like, they look back on it. Not trying to hurt you. memories, But I'm like, don't give away what you worked so hard for. You did go through that. You put in the work, you, you know, you really healed yourselves with this Mm -hmm. and, or you, you boosted your immune system system. Don't, don't take that for granted because you know what they've seen with their dad. And, you know, it's, it's hard to regain your health sometimes when you've um, when you lose grasp of it. So to, to create these kids that really are, um, you know, let's put a little more onus on the, the kids, like they're, they are smart. And so to, to just value what's truly important. And if you don't have your health, you have nothing. If you're a senior in high school, you want to go off to college and you're struggling with, with IBS. I have one of my lunch leaders who had um, five feet of his colon taken out Mm -hmm. at age 22, I think, or 25. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with no real talk about diet and lifestyle to try and reverse I think it was Crohn's or colitis. Mm-hmm. And so what if somebody had, what if he had known enough to ask questions? What if I had known enough to ask questions when I was a new mom? I didn't dare. Right. I just trusted. Right. And I think at this point, there's so much information. You can kind of find anything. Mm-hmm. So you have to really be a critical thinker and you want those mm-hmm. doctors or those um, health providers to be somebody who's thinking outside of the box and a lot of that's what's so hard about the censorship just that, to have a you know, big toolbox to, yeah, to or pull let's, from like terry said experiment yeah. like your body is resilient too mm. so you, you see what works mm-hmm. you know and so and so for moms that are trying to advocate it is a challenging time because you don't want to be um you don't want to be uh that that one or that mom or that, you know, that's causing the ruckus or that, you know, and it can be a kind of a terrifying and hard experience to step out on a line 
or whatever. I always get those things wrong. Step out on what is it? Step uh, out step and out say on and a, speak up. A ledge or step out on a ledge, yeah, and speak out. But um, I think I've heard a lot of people say too, like if you don't speak up right now, then you are part of the problem. And I keep always kind of saying that in the back of my head, like, you know, how much, again, how much, how much is mine to do? (laughs) How much is mine to do? And what can I do? And you, you have to kind of pick your battles, but know, you know, have that vision of what you want. And, and you can be very respectful and say things too. And I think that's where actually we all need to be respectful. Like everybody's coming at this from different traumas and fears and so that we can't dehumanize one another at all like Mm -hmm. we really this is a moment in time where we have to come together and and that's where i miss like healthy debate why don't we have that on tv why aren't we open discourse yeah where you're not vilified for having an alternative opinion because what if you're right what if what if you know you come up with something great like why are we squelching these voices or what are we teaching our kids when you're not allowed to have an opinion or you're not allowed to think differently or you're not allowed to question the narrative or maybe that's not right for your body but maybe it is right for your friend who knows but I think yeah you know there's like well we can and, go on and, and on. conversation you know everything evolves with conversation yeah. and dialogue and and it's how we are together as a group that's how we have always problem solved mm-hmm. is through the channels of face-to-face person-to-person yeah. dialogue but then you look at the way social media has worked on mm. us and it's completely blown yeah. us apart it's taken away our relationships of in-person and it's turned us into the echo chamber mm. of social media and yeah. we're not solving problems we're and making we them worse we can't consume that much information i don't think as humans we're meant to have yeah. all of that so somebody said i forget who it was but going small is the biggest thing you can do <laughs> and i was like that's brilliant so literally starting with yourself and then your family and then your community. And that's maybe as far as you go, you know, and that's your job to do in this lifetime. And there are those like Hilda, who I do the, we do a little being human um, thing on Instagram. You know, we always talk about there, there are those who are going to be the warriors out there fighting the the fight on the front lines and then they're going to be those who you know fight it in a different way and you know so that everybody has their you don't have to put the pressure on yourself to be a certain way to speak up mm-hmm. but I think speaking up um if you feel compelled to and it doesn't have to be on social media but maybe it's to that school board or that you know health supervisor whatever it may be and just say listen like I don't this doesn't make sense to me and is there a way that we can work together to, you know, talk about this or have a way that more people can discuss this? Or can we come up with some creative solutions or alternatives? Because it's just I'm having a really hard time making sense of it all. Yeah. And I think, you know, together we can yeah, brainstorm and involve people because no one wants to be put on their heels and like feel like you're attacking them. I tried that with the public school system and it was like, you know, they're like, go away, please. You're annoying. (laughs) Well, I think we can leave it here, but I think that one thing I want to make sure everyone understands is that we are going to get through this and we are going to get through it much better if we try, strive to do it together. Mm. So yeah. However mm-hmm. that works, whatever that means for you, whether it's within your family or within your community or all of the above friendships, it doesn't matter. I think that we have um, had the opportunity to sort of like cut ties with things, but 
I think when there's a problem to solve that involves our community, it's really important to strive to come together and not yeah. dig your heels in and cause further divide and cause more inflammatory um, situations, but just really speak from yeah. the heart and, 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 and speak from the heart, live from the heart and yeah. implore people to listen because yeah. you're coming from the heart. So, yeah. And my grandfather used to say, you don't got to have anything, but you got to have heart. <laughs> <laughs> like that is so true. And I think finding, you know, people feel so isolated right now and alone. And so really trying to find, you know, community members, like we're, we're humans. We need, we need hugs and laughs and contact. And we can kit, talk you know. all day about nutrition and the benefits yeah, of having but, just like this. I, ideal diet but if you're not having community yeah. if you're not having connection your health will not improve right so it will important. suffer and we so, want to model that for our kids that yeah. it's okay to to get back together and to be you know absolutely yeah, it's so it's so important yes absolutely yeah. and i yeah our children cannot be held responsible for any more of no. this it's, and at what point is it like what's what life is worth living if you can't have that human contact and that, you know, we know that that's what lights us up, you know, yeah. and that's where the joy of being human, nobody wants to be alone and feel in their head all the time of like how to figure everything out. You need, mm -hmm. you need laughter. I think laughter, one of my lunch leaders always made me laugh like every day, sometimes with five kids, I'd go into work, like crying, like, ah! <laughs> and she'd just hold my hand and she'd be like, Hillary, it's going to be okay. Or it won't. <laughs> They're going to be fine or they won't. <laughs> and, I was like, Either way. and I would laugh and I just like, okay, everything's going to be okay. I'm going to survive. But we have to find, you know, those little, ways to laugh and to get back to really what it means to be human. Yeah, absolutely. So well, thank you. Yeah. So thank you for, for coming to me. visit. Yeah, absolutely. Sunny California. I know. <laughs> so